Um, it is really my privilege and pleasure to get to introduce Dr. Langford today to you guys. Um, so as many of you may have just heard, um, Dr. Langford did her training initially in OBGYN, followed by MFM, and then we were lucky enough to bring her through our anesthesia critical care medicine uh, fellowship here at Maryland. Um, as I was saying before, it was hard for me initially when I met Allie to understand exactly uh, OB critical care, but it's become increasingly easy to understand this pathway over the last few years. And I think more and more, I'm really relying on Dr. Langford's expertise when it comes to understanding the physiology of pregnant patients um, and really sort of getting these patients through whether it's COVID or acute leukemia or whatnot. And so I couldn't think of anyone better to have these lectures. So for this week and next week, Dr. Langford is gonna be talking to us about uh, physiological changes of pregnancy. And I think her approach was to sort of take a big topic and break it into two weeks. So this will be kind of part one followed by part two, which will be next week. Um, Allie, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really happy to have you here. I can't wait to learn from your expertise. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction. I really appreciate that. Um, so we'll just go ahead and get started. Um, I had sort of was tasked with um, discussing the physiologic changes of pregnancy um, and then obstetric ultrasound. So I kind of combined them to do a case-based approach so that we have a good mix of maternal and fetal cases um, with a lot of ultrasound um, mixed in. Um, please don't hesitate to stop me if you have any questions um, about any case at all. So just to get started, um, we're just gonna describe um, the maternal um, physiologic changes in the cardiovascular, respiratory, um, endocrine, renal, and hematologic systems over the course of two weeks. We're going to um, identify normal and abnormal ultrasound findings using a case-based approach. And really, I think, you know, that some of the ultrasound stuff that I've included today um, is a bit more um, complex than I would ever expect a, a critical care physician to have to um, know when doing an ultrasound, specifically some of the fetal things we'll go through. But I really just wanted to um, provide some obstetric ultrasounds for you so that really you can identify fetal number, um, position of the fetus, uh, placentation, whether it's anterior, posterior, if it's a placenta previa, um, and really looking at the amniotic fluid index, because I think some of those things are really helpful um, and can be obtained pretty quickly. So uh, we have the first case is going is a patient. She's a 33-year-old, uh, Gravita 1. She presents at 27 weeks and three days to the outside hospital with complaints of palpitations, shortness of breath, and cough. Uh, the patient's pregnancy is complicated by no prenatal care. At the outside hospital, she was noted to be an SBT with blood pressures in the 90s to 100 systolic over 50s diastolic. She converted to sinus tachycardia um, with adenosine and was subsequently transferred to you. A formal echocardiogram on admission shows an ejection fraction of 20 to 25%. And you perform a detailed obstetric ultrasound and see the following. So uh, by the way, these are just all real cases that um, I have certainly encountered over the past uh, couple of years. So uh, what we have here um, is a transabdominal ultrasound. So the first thing that I think we would be helpful to review is just identifying fetal number. Um, and the best way to do that is certainly early in the pregnancy. So the first trimester is going to be the best time to identify fetal number and specifically chorionicity. So we want to identify the number of placentas. We want to identify the number of, the, of sacs and certainly for each fetus. Um, because there's different risks to a pregnancy, whether it's dichorionic or monochorionic, and certainly whether it's monoamniotic or diamniotic. So in this picture here, so this patient has twins, um, and this actually, when she presented, was uh, at 27 weeks, so she is, was otherwise thin, so it's nice, so we had really great ultrasound images of her. Um, but what we see here is the dividing membrane. And the really nice thing about these images is that you see one that the placenta, one fetus has an anterior placenta and one has a posterior placenta. And then you've got this relatively thick dividing membrane. And this, what we call this is either the twin peak sign or the lambda sign where the membranes, um, the amniotic membrane and the chorion fuse and form this peak-like appearance. 
So this is sort of pathognomonic for a dichorionic diamniotic twin gestation. So now we have a patient that we have identified at least with twins. Um, and then just to briefly review the fetal position, which is something, again, that I think um, should be easily identified by anyone that's doing ultrasound. Um, this is going to be um, sort of a sagittal view. And when you are performing a sagittal view, if you imagine that your transducer is in the linear position with the indicator pointed towards the patient's head, and you're effectively slicing this almost like a Subway sandwich. So when you see that the head is um, towards the right of the screen, this is actually, um, I hope you guys can see my cursor, but this area down here is the lower uterine segment or the cervix. So the head is actually going to be closest to the lower uterine segment, and so this fetus is going to be in the vertex or cephalic presentation. And so both of her twins actually were vertex. So that's helpful um, in terms of our mode of delivery planning. Specifically, you know, we have this patient coming in with shortness of breath. We're not entirely sure what we're going to get into. So we've established that she has a dichorionic, two different placentas, diamniotic, two sacs, um, and each fetus is vertex. And this is just in contrast to um, a singleton um, gestation or one single fetus. This is first trimester, so again, the best time to identify uh, fetal number and chorionicity. Um, and if you were, while we don't really say position of the fetus in the first trimester, I thought this was helpful in that, again, if you have the transducer in a linear position and you have a sagittal view, this fetus is in the breech presentation. So for our patient, getting back, um, she was evaluated by cardiology. She was started on metoprolol, digoxin, and therapeutic low molecular weight heparin for her cardiomyopathy. She also went diuresis. Um, genetic evaluation was performed and revealed that the patient had a familial TTN dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and on hospital day seven, the patient was discharged home. And one of the reasons that we um, sort of pursued this genetic evaluation, something that we're doing on most of our cardiomyopathies, but she presented at 27 weeks, which is a bit early for what we would think of as a peripartum cardiomyopathy. Um, generally, we would expect to see that in the last month of pregnancy um, for several months after pregnancy. So the 27-week mark was a little bit early. Um, and she didn't, while her EF was 20 to 25% and she had some shortness of breath, she um, recovered very quickly once we got her initiated um, on these medications. So she represented to labor and delivery at 33 weeks and six days with worsening shortness of breath and lower extremity edema. This time she was hypotensive, tachycardic, and had cool lower extremities, concerning for a cardiogenic shock. So her bedside echo was as follows, um, with pretty, you know, what appeared to be worsening of her um, dilated cardiomyopathy that had otherwise been uh, moderately controlled as an outpatient. So now we have a patient with twins at 33 weeks and six days with decompensated heart failure and in cardiogenic shock. So the plan was to optimize her from a CV perspective um, before proceeding with delivery. So she had a swan placed. Um, she was started on iotropic support. Um, we had a multidisciplinary meeting with the cardiac surgery, cardiology, and intensive care teams. Um, and once we felt that she was appropriately optimized, we elected to go um, move forward with delivery um, for a primary cesarean delivery and bilateral tubal ligation under general anesthesia. And while certainly we could have an entire lecture in itself on cardiomyopathy and pregnancy and recommendations for mode of delivery, um, this, well, I won't get into that granular detail, but again, in a patient that has truly decompensated heart failure, um, 
you know, sometimes the benefit of doing a cesarean delivery under general certainly outweighs um, a vaginal delivery with neuraxial. So that's why we chose that approach. Um, just um, due to her concern for worsening uh, cardiogenic shock when she was um, during the procedure itself, we did have micropunctures in place for her in case we needed to um, proceed with a VA ECMO. Um, and her procedure was complicated by a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, again, I think that was a factor of many things, but she was under general anesthesia. Um, and although optimized, she probably, when she had that significant blood loss, she also took an additional hit from a um, cardiac perspective. Didn't end up going on VA ECMO, but did have to um, come out on inotropes and require a modest amount of blood transfusions. Just going to... Um, it was in, in the chat, someone had just um, asked about the um, indication for the uh, therapeutic low molecular weight heparin. Um, in her case, and just speaking with cardiology, she didn't have any mural thrombus at all. It was just given the degree of her um, dilated cardiomyopathy and pregnancy. That's why we elected for therapeutic over prophylactic lobinox. Allie? Yes. When you said you um, put the PA catheter in and then you optimize the patient with inotropic support, um, mm -hmm. what's op what is optimized for a patient who's this far along with two um, two babies inside of them? I mean, do they have a higher cardiac output, cardiac index goal than you and I would have? Yeah, that's really great. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of um, targeting an index goal, when we certainly we, and we'll kind of get into that with regards to their cardiac output, um, and having a much higher cardiac output, one, just because she's pregnant, but two, because she has twins, um, we were still targeting an index of greater than 2.2. So um, I think the choice of inotropes actually in retrospect um, was a little bit more challenging than what we had anticipated. And um, um, we ultimately chose um, Milrinone for her, um, if I am remembering correctly, um, because actually once we kind of were able to get a swan in, um, her, hypoten her hypotension resolved. I, I think maybe she needed pressors very transiently, um, but we chose Milrinone because we were worried, I think, about her, um, that she was very proarrhythmogenic. So that's why we wanted to um, actually shy away from uh, dobutamine or epinephrine for her. Um, in retrospect, and I think I learned a great deal from this case in terms of the inotropic support for her, but possibly milrinone, although she had very normal renal function, maybe was not the best choice going into a primary um, cesarean delivery with an anticipated blood loss of at least what we would expect to be a leader. So, um, again, just taking away from this case, I, I probably would not use milrinone just because, again, we know that it is a much longer-acting um, inotrope, and I would probably use something more along the lines of epinephrine that I could rapidly titrate, especially when we got into a little bit of trouble in the operating room, and that's ultimately what she ended up on in the OR. So, um, again, when the swan was placed, we, we targeted an index of greater than 2.2 with our inotropic support. Sorry, so let's see. So um, just to kind of dive into the cardiovascular changes of pregnancy, I think we alluded to this um, uh, just now when talking about the cardiac output for this patient specifically, but we know that the cardiac output um, can increase um, to greater than uh, by 40 to 50% throughout pregnancy. You can see a modest increase in the first trimester, which really increases more significantly in the second trimester. And the other thing to keep in mind is um, the changes in the cardiac output in time of labor. Um, and this is where I kind of talked about vaginal delivery versus cesarean delivery um, specifically. So for a vaginal delivery, for most cardiac um, pathologies, um, for the most part, we do recommend a vaginal delivery. And the reason we recommend that is because with each contraction during labor, there's a little bit of an auto-transfusion of about 200 to 500 cc's of blood, probably not that high, maybe on the closer end of 200 to 300 cc's of blood. So it's a little bit of a stress test with each contraction. Um, and so without 
and this is in contrast to a cesarean delivery, when within minutes of a cesarean delivery, there is this massive surge in cardiac output. Um, and so that's why sometimes in patients that have, um, one can tolerate neuraxial and it's usual, which can dampen that effect, um, and two, but that are otherwise well compensated, we actually prefer a vaginal delivery because I think patients are more likely to decompensate um, from a cardiovascular standpoint with a cesarean delivery, given that significant uh, rapid increase in cardiac output. So the increase in cardiac output in pregnancy is primarily driven by an increase in the stroke volume. We'll see a little bit of an increase in the heart rate, but still, if you were to see a pregnant patient with a heart rate in the 120s, 130s, that's abnormal and should certainly be evaluated. We know that there's a decrease um, in the systemic vascular resistance with a decrease in the blood pressure, which sort of naters in the second trimester, I would say around the 26 to 28 week mark. And then at about 32 weeks, that's when that um, the blood pressure starts to resume to pre-pregnancy levels. And then again, we'll start to get a little bit more into plasma volume a little bit later in the discussion. But specifically with this patient with her twin gestation and having a, what we would normally see in a singleton pregnancy with a cardiac output that increases by 30 to 50%, um, in this patient, it's often much, much higher with twins. So I included this because I think this is a really great um, reference tool um, whenever I see a new patient in the outpatient setting um, with regards to their uh, cardiovascular uh, risk in pregnancy, depending on what type of lesion they have. So whether they have a previously corrected congenital heart defect, whether they have severe aortic stenosis or um, pulmonary hypertension, I always like to consult this, this list. Um, mainly because it gives you a really nice summary of the maternal cardiac event rate. So primarily we're talking about arrhythmias, um, decompensated heart failure, need for admission, need for cardiac intervention during the pregnancy. Um, so the one thing that I will draw your attention to is certainly um, uh, class four, um, which is um, where that we put sort of the um, patients, certainly with pulmonary hypertension, they fall in this category. And anyone that falls in this category, we often, at the, if we can see these patients early enough in the pregnancy, would talk about uh, termination of pregnancy, given their really high risk of maternal morbidity. Um, but as I said, pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary arterial hypertension falls on this list, severe aortic stenosis, some of the lesions that really... Um, make me very concerned when I see them. The vascular Ehlers-Danlos patients or Marfan patients with a dilated um, ascending aorta. Um, and just a quick note about the um, Isominger syndrome, um, which I'm not sure you guys may encounter sometime during um, your uh, career, but again, this is also one of those things that makes us all very, very uncomfortable. Um, Again, the mater maternal mortality associated with this condition is greater than 50%. And I think the physiologic change in pregnancy to remember that sort of can precipitate this right to left shunt is a drop in the systemic vascular resistance um, increase, again, in their um, plasma volume, increase in the cardiac output, and their um, pulmonary pressures are greater than their systemic pressures. And that's going to cause this shunt and hypoxemia. So I think always keep this in mind um, when you have a patient with whether it's an uncorrected ASD or VSD that they're at risk for something like it given the um, physiologic changes. All right, so getting out of the um, cardiovascular system, we'll move on to our next case. Uh, let me just make sure we're doing okay on time here. Um, Next patient is a 27-year-old, a G5, P0131, um, at 24 weeks and three days, uh, who presents to labor and delivery with complaints of headache, nausea, and vomiting. Uh, the patient's pregnancy uh, is complicated by lupus on prednisone and plaquenil, um, SSA antibody positive, chronic hypertension, chronic kidney disease with a baseline creatinine of 1.1, 1 
recurrent pregnancy loss, and a history of classical cesarean delivery at 25 weeks, and a previous pregnancy um, for HELP syndrome. And I promise we see these patients that have a laundry list, as you guys I'm sure have also consulted on with many medical problems. So this is not out of the realm of someone that we see sort of on a weekly basis. So uh, when the patient presents, the patient's afebrile, not tachycardic, but hypertensive with a blood pressure in the 180s over 105, which is certainly uncharacteristic for this patient. Um, CBC and CMP are primarily notable for a thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 119 and a creatinine of 3. And this is up from the baseline um, of 1.1. 1 .1. 24-hour urine is collected, which results in greater than 5 grams of protein. Um, complement levels and double-stranded DNA are within normal limits. So the differential for this patient includes preeclampsia with severe features, chronic hypertension exacerbation, HELP syndrome, a lupus flare, nephrotic syndrome, acute kidney injury. I'm sure you can think of many things that would kind of go into this differential. So um, let this lead us into kind of changes in the um, urinary tract, um, in the kidneys specifically in pregnancy, and how we work through our deferential knowing these things. Um, so overall, there is an increase in the renal size and the weight of the kidneys increases in pregnancy. There's dilation of the urinary collecting system. Um, this is all driven by progesterone. Um, we see hydroureter and hydronephrosis, which is also more common on the right because you get dextro rotation of the uterus um, and you get, uh, so it kind of compresses the right ureter, um, which can lead to the hydronephrosis. Um, we see an increased risk of ascending urinary tract infections. That's why certainly in pregnancy, the recommendation is always to treat asymptomatic bacteria. The renal plasma flow can increase by 60 to 80%. And there's an increase in the GFR, which peaks at 50% above non-pregnancy levels. So due to this increase in renal plasma flow and increased um, GFR, we see a decrease in the serum creatinine and a decrease in the serum urea concentrations. So we um, will commonly see a creatinine of 0.4 to 0.6 as being normal for pregnancy. Any condition that's associated with volume contraction or intravascular hypovolemia, such as preeclampsia, um, we know that this can be associated with impaired uric acid clearance, and that's why that's one of the things that we look at um, when we're concerned about preeclampsia. There is an increase in proteinuria, anywhere up to 300 milligrams of protein in a 24-hour urine collection, but anything above that would be considered abnormal um, in, an other, in a patient that doesn't otherwise have chronic kidney disease. We know that patients that have underlying chronic kidney disease, um, whether it's lupus nephritis, chronic kidney disease from any other cause, um, even patients with longstanding hypertension that have chronic kidney disease, those patients are at risk for adverse pregnancy outcomes, um, specifically preeclampsia with severe, with, uh, severe features, uh, fetal growth restriction, um, and concerning features for placental insufficiency. So these are the patients that I really worry about. Um, we don't have a lot of things that we can do in pregnancy to uh, reduce that risk of preeclampsia. Um, specifically, control of blood pressure does not, we know does not prevent preeclampsia. We know that it helps prevent mom from developing stroke or um, potentially like an MI, but we know that it unfortunately doesn't have any influence on their preeclampsia risk. So in this patient specifically, we worry that she has chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia with severe features based on her 24-hour urine result. Her blood pressures are controlled with labetalol. You decide to give her antenatal corticosteroids and admit for inpatient management. When you place the patient on fetal monitoring, the fetal heart rate seems very low. And before I get into the kind of fetal side of things, I just want to make a comment with regards to her um, chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia and why we think it's that and not a lupus flare. Because often these times, patients with chronic hypertension and underlying kidney disease are incredibly challenging to differentiate whether if this is just worsening of their renal disease, is it a lupus flare, or is it truly preeclampsia? 
And I think for this patient specifically, with normal complement levels, normal double-stranded DNA, um, and such an acute increase in her in her proteinuria um, from baseline proteinuria to greater than five grams and having nephrotic range, those are the patients that I um, categorize as a superimposed preeclampsia picture. Now, these aren't patients that you absolutely have to deliver right away. Um, I've included some of the indications for delivery, the most common being refractory blood pressures despite oral antihypertensives or IV antihypertensive therapy, um, eclampsia, HELP syndrome, pulmonary edema, and placental abruption are um, absolute indications to proceed with delivery from a maternal perspective. And from a fetal perspective, Things like a lethal anomaly or an intrauterine fetal demise or non-reassuring antenatal testing would be indications for delivery. So in this patient specifically, so the fetal heart rate is consistently in the 40s to 50s, but there's not big decelerations. It's just in the 40s to 50s, which seems really strange. So then you decide to, you know, you're scanning the patient to get a better assessment, and you notice that the placenta looks really big. So um, we would consider this to be placentomegaly. And normal placental size, I always think of it, it should be equal to the gestational age. So if someone is 30 weeks, it should be about three centimeters or 30 millimeters. In the second trimester, placentomegaly is defined as greater than four millimeters. And in the third trimester, it's greater than six. So just visually, this looks very, very large. So it's an anterior placenta. Um, and it's very thick. And this is a really interesting picture where you see this really thick um, edema. So this is skin edema here. So these features are concerning and you're continuing to scan through the baby and you notice that there's a modest amount of ascites. And then in this top picture here, you notice that there is a, um, here's the heart here. Um, this baby has a specific heart defect, but, um, and you notice that there's a pericardial effusion. So you've got a pericardial effusion, ascites, skin edema, placentomegaly, and then when you're looking for um, at the heart, you notice that there's pretty significant tricuspid regurgitation. So all these things are concerning for heart failure or what we would think of as high drops vitalis. So why does this patient with lupus have high drops? So there can be a number of regions, reasons for high drops, and we talk about them and we break it up into immune and non-immune. So this patient would be a non-immune high drops, and it's because of those antibodies. So the patient has SSA antibodies, which will cross the placenta, and they can cause congenital heart block. And that's what we're seeing in this patient. And unfortunately, by the time that you see heart block associated with high drops, um, the prognosis for the fetus is incredibly poor, and there hasn't been a lot of data to suggest that corticosteroid therapy is going to um, have any improvement. So that in itself would be an indication for delivery in this patient. The most, one of the most common things that we all think of when we think of high drops, we think of RH alloimmunization and fetal anemia from that perspective, but there's actually many more causes from a non-immune perspective. Um, just briefly to go into them, so cardiovascular, which actually makes up the majority of the cases of non-immune high drops, can be from structural anomalies, um, arrhythmias, like in this case, um, cardiomyopathy, cardiac tumors. Um, so one of the things that we see, we can see like a, um, a rhabdomyxoma in the heart, and we can see that in sometimes... Um, we would think of like tuber sclerosis, especially if we think that the parents have it. Um, and we can see that in fetuses as well. You'll see a large cardiac tumor that can just lead to um, heart failure. Um, similar to the Brady arrhythmias, when you're starting to see heart block, um, the prognosis is very poor. If the non-immune high drops develops in the setting of a structural anomaly, um, the prognosis is not good. Chromosomal, um, we can see high drops in Turner syndrome or trisomy 21. Um, hematologic, fetal hemorrhage, alpha thalassemia, and then one of the most common things we think of is infection with parvovirus B19. So if you're ever scanning and you start to think that you're seeing a pleural effusion or a pericardial effusion, um, you can certainly think about high drops. And the true definition is um, 
excess fluid in two or more um, compartments. So it can be pericardial, pleural ascites, um, or skin edema. And that's measured, it should be greater than five millimeters when you're measuring for skin edema. And um, sometimes you'll often see placenta megaly, as we saw, and you can see polyhydramnia as well. Um, and, and so those are, it's really important in these patients with lupus, um, I'll often check an SSA, SSB antibody um, if they've never had one before, because we know of this association with complete heart block. And these patients are ones that you start actually scanning um, the PR interval starting at 16 weeks gestation. All right, so uh, next case, um, this patient is a 38-year-old G4P3003 at 28 weeks and five days who presents to the outside hospital with shortness of breath. Um, this patient's pregnancy is complicated by moderate persistent asthma and also a dichorionic diamniotic twin gestation. The patient is diagnosed with COVID pneumonia. She's placed on six liters nasal cannula which rapidly escalates to high flow nasal cannula so the patient is transferred to your institution. Unfortunately, I think this probably sounds very familiar to all of us. Um, on arrival, the patient has increased work of breathing. Her SpO2 is 90% on 40 liters high flow and 100% FiO2. So what are the changes that we see in the respiratory system in pregnancy? So um, we know that patients have an increase in their minute ventilation, um, and that can increase by 40%. And this is primarily driven by an increase in the tidal volume by at least 100 to 200 ml. Because of the increase in the minute ventilation, there's a uh, respiratory alkalosis. So the pH is generally about 7.4 to 7.47. Um, and we see a pCO2 anywhere from 28 to 34. Um, this causes a compensatory decrease in the bicarb, um, and so that'll generally be around 18 to 22. And I always just try to always keep these numbers in my head um, just because I think it's really helpful when interpreting an ABG in these patients and just specifically noting the PCO2 um, and the bicarb because we have sort of very different thresholds and with that very different um, indications to make changes in our um, mechanical ventilation or even consideration for ECMO. Um, there's really no major change um, in the respiratory rate or the vital capacity. So anytime you see a pregnant patient with a respiratory rate greater than 22, that should always be considered abnormal. And the biggest thing, so um, I always want um, providers to know about this decrease in the functional residual capacity and residual volume by 20%. And this is what we mean when we say pregnant patients do not have any reserve at all. <clears throat> so when we are going to intubate these patients, we want to make sure to pre-oxygenate them incredibly well, um, pre-oxygenate them to an SpO2 of 100%, because once you induce them, you probably only have 30 to 60 seconds until you're going to start to have um, a decrease in their um, SpO2 uh, before you can... Um, place your endotracheal tube. So again, most importantly, pre-oxygenate, pre-oxygenate. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, we've had patients um, during COVID that have been on maximized high flow support and we almost can't, how do we pre-oxygenate them any better? We'll actually put them on like BiPAP or um, just to try to get them to an SpO2 of 100% before we um, intubate them. Because we know that once we intubate them, there is going to be a transient decrease in your SpO2, and often associated with that is a decrease in the fetal heart rate. So um, the last thing we want is to have to do an emergent cesarean delivery for fetal concerns um, because we did not pre-oxygenate when we potentially had the opportunity to do so. So otherwise, tenants of, of treatment in ARDS, um, I say low tidal volume ventilation. I sort of put a little asterisk by that, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, prone position ventilation. Uh, certainly, we know we haven't really, looking into the literature, there's very limited information about the whether we think this is truly beneficial um, in pregnancy, just because we know that uh, pregnancy itself is a state of improved VQ uh, mismatch. So, um, 
I think I'm still trying to figure that out. A prone position truly is beneficial, but um, we know that it's safe. Um, we know that they, we can do continuous fetal monitoring in the prone position. Um, so we have been do absolutely doing that during COVID for our patients. Um, we want to try to maintain the PCO2 less than 40, um, just because permissive hypercapnia is poorly tolerated by the fetus. And we know transient hypercapnia is okay. And what do we do with these patients that are hypercapnic, but their pH is okay because we've buffered them with um, some bicarb? It's a little bit hard to know. Um, there is really one study, it's in the anesthesia literature, when we look at the effects of hypercapnia on fetal outcome. And it is um, a study where they looked at hypercapnia for 10 minutes um, before they uh, deliver the fetus. Um, so it's really hard to know in terms of what is the long-term uh, repercussions for the, um, you know, for the babies when they do have uh, transient um, hypercapnia, but we know that sustained prolonged hypercapnia is not tolerated, and a fetus is much more likely to become acidotic than it is going to be hypoxic um, if mom's PO2 is high, but the SpO2 is like at least maintained around 90, we know that the fetus is just much more susceptible to acidemia. So we always try to normalize the pH, maintain an SpO2 greater than 94%, that's in an ideal world, definitely greater than 90%. And I just put on here that there's similar considerations for ECMO, um, generally using the ELSO criteria, with the exception of a PCO2. Um, and the, I think ELSO, you know, suggests having a PCO2 greater than 50 for greater than six hours or, or even higher than that. Um, whereas our target really is less than 40. If it's persistently in the 40s and 50s, this maximizing the ventilatory support, that's when I think we need to either look towards delivery or an alternative um, such as ECMO. Um, and specifically in ARDS and in COVID, where it's really unclear if delivery has had any improvement in the disease process itself. Um, there is a study um, from Texas that looked at delivery and the P to F ratio in COVID. Um, and actually, we re replicated that here. And initially, the of 17 patients, they saw that the P to F decreases a little bit um, with delivery, um, whereas in our institution-specific data, we saw that the PDF um, increases at least transiently within the first 48 hours after delivery. Um, and then my only other thing about low tidal volume ventilation, um, again, there is really no literature from a pregnancy standpoint to um, sort of back this up or um, to verify this that, um, you know, I think it's hard when we take patients that are used to higher tidal volumes um, by 100 and 200 ml um, and we put them with 60 cc per kg. Um, I think that um, increases our risk of hypercapnia for these patients and I think we probably have a little bit more room to go up on the tidal volume than what we otherwise in the non-pregnant patient just because that is a um, physiologic change that they've adapted to throughout the pregnancy. So sometimes I'll push these patients a little bit more up to the 8 cc's per kg um, as long as their driving pressures and their plateau pressures aren't exceeding what we would um, otherwise expect for a non-pregnant patient. Um, so in our patients, um, despite maximum mechanical ventilation settings, your patient continues to have profound hypoxia with an SpO2 in the 70s to 80s. You've consulted your cardiac surgery colleagues to evaluate for venovenous ECMO. She's placed in a supine position due to her hemodynamic instability, and she experiences a cardiac arrest. The OB team is already at bedside because you've called ahead. You've let them know that you're having a lot of problems with hypoxia. Um, and they perform a brief ultrasound with the following findings. So again, this is a twin gestation. You're seeing two twins sort of right, uh, the superior twin right here, inferior twin here. Um, and they're again, dichorionic, amniotic, so two placentas. So you may see one twin affected more than the other, which is unlike what you would see often in like a monochorionic pregnancy. But what I wanted you to see here is that you have one twin, the inferior twin, with cardiac activity, and the superior twin with absent cardiac activity or agonal fetal heart tones, if any at all. So 
and a profoundly hypoxic mom that experiences cardiac arrest, um, the next thing we think of is a perimortem cesarean delivery or what we would call a resuscitative cesarean delivery. Um, so I just want to point this out because this may be something that you guys have experienced over the past couple years. Um, and what what things do you need to know? So the biggest thing, and, and which you've probably already done for this patient that's already hypoxic, that I'm sure is having changes in the fetal heart rate because of the hypoxia, but left uterine displacement. So getting the uterus off of the inferior vena cava. And we prefer left uterine displacement as opposed to a wedge, um, specifically in cardiac arrest, because we know that the effectiveness of our chest compressions are significantly reduced when a patient is tilted on their side. So that's why we want them flat on the back on a, a board um, with manual displacement of the uterus. And it doesn't have to be to the left. It can honestly be to the left or the right, whichever side you're on, um, or preferably, sorry, left uterine displacement. But you don't have to be on this side of the patient pulling towards you. You can be on either side of the patient. Um, these deliveries should always be performed at the site of the arrest. We should never take the time to move a patient from the site of the arrest to an operating room because we can lose valuable time. Um, we should always initiate a cesarean delivery within four minutes of the arrest, or if maternal viability is not possible, this patient is brought into the emergency room, they are found down, we don't know how long they've been down, there's no need to wait for that. You can just begin your cesarean delivery immediately. You only need a scalpel. We shouldn't waste time on any antiseptic techniques. Um, if you have ROSC, we can deal with the risk of infection. Um, and then in these patients, you could always consider eCPR. So big things to know, arrest, that, just do the cesarean delivery at the site of the arrest. Don't waste time and you only getting instruments or anything that you need that we would otherwise have for a surgical procedure. You really just need a scalpel. Um, and certainly, as I'm sure you already have done, don't forget to call your neonatology colleagues um, because you're going to need help um, the, with the resuscitation of the fetus. I think we're doing okay on time. We can do maybe one or two more. Um, so this next case um, is a 22-year-old G3, uh, P1011. She's at 34 weeks and three days by first trimester ultrasound. She presents to the emergency department following a motor vehicle collision. She was a strange driver in a head-on collision. She was going approximately 40 miles per hour and she states that the airbags did deploy. She complains of severe right lower extremity pain and abdominal pain. She is hemodynamically stable. All of the obstetric providers are tied up in the operating room and they ask that you confirm fetal cardiac activity and the nurse is on the way to place the fetus on continuous fetal monitoring. The team also asks that you obtain a Clyde Howard Bett key along with your coagulation profile into your norm, um, in addition to your normal set of labs. So what changes do we see um, in the uh, coagulation uh, factors specifically in pregnancy? So we all know that pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. There is increase for venous stasis, and this combination of factors increases the risk for VTE approximately five to six fold, with an overall risk of thromboembolism in pregnancy approximately one in, um, in 1,500. So this is driven by an increase in the majority of the clotting factors. So one, uh, seven, eight, nine, and 10 are all increased. Um, the only factors that are unchanged are um, 2, 5, and 12. Um, and the plasma, plasma fibrinogen increases by 50%. So oftentimes we expect to see a fibrinogen greater than 400. And really any fibrinogen less than 200 makes me extremely worried um, for whether it's uh, someone that is in DIC or kind of heading into DIC in the setting of potentially a placental abruption. Um, and interestingly, the levels of the coagulation factor should normalize by two weeks postpartum. So if you see someone coming in um, greater than two weeks postpartum and they have abnormal uh, clotting factors, that would be a little bit strange. So we should always evaluate um, them a little bit further if that's the case. So this patient, um, you know, the OB team has asked you to get uh, fetal cardiac activity. 
Um, so one of the things, if you can, again, just using your curvilinear probe, um, I don't think I said that earlier in terms of when we're doing our ultrasounds, we're using this um, lower frequency probe just because it has good depth penetration. Um, and just identifying cardiac activity. Sometimes I think it's a little bit challenging. So if you put a little bit of color on it, that can also help. And then oftentimes we'll do either pulse Doppler or M mode to get that fetal heart rate here. We've done M mode, which I find actually to be the easiest um, just to get the rate. And then oftentimes you can just watch it too. If you're not sure how to calculate it or whether or not you wanna put in pulse Doppler or M mode, you can just visualize it and just see that it appears very normal. Normal fetal heart rate should be between 110 and 160. And again, in the bottom right picture, we are just identifying the location of the placenta. Um, and that's really helpful to, again, to identify whether it's anterior, if it's at the uterine fundus or posterior. Um, so here you've got a nice anterior placenta. If it was fundal, you would expect to see a placenta that sort of wraps around this way. Because um, again, here's the maternal cervix, lower uterine segment anterior aspect of the uterus, posterior aspect, and the fundus of the uterus is over here. So you check out the fetal heart rate, you see that it appears normal, the placenta looks okay, you don't see anything really abnormal behind the placenta, um, and visually the fluid looks okay here, um, but then you're going to go ahead and measure it. So you can do two measurements, one's called an amniotic fluid index, and the other's called a maximum vertical pocket. Truly, we sort of um, rely on the maximum vertical pocket uh, more commonly. So really, with your transducer in the linear position, um, you want to be perpendicular or, yeah, uh, parallel, sorry, to the abdomen. And you just want to find your deepest vertical pocket. So you want to find a pocket of fluid that doesn't have any fetal parts or umbilical cord or anything like that. And you just want to measure from the top of the pocket uh, to the inferior aspect of that pocket. And a pocket greater than 2.0 centimeters is considered normal. Anything greater than eight centimeters would be considered polyhydramnios. So if you did an amniotic fluid index, that's looking at four separate pockets, usually in the upper and bilateral lower quadrants. Again, you wanna exclude. So you can measure above the umbilical cord, but you don't wanna include the umbilical cord in this measurement. And a normal amniotic fluid index is anywhere from five centimeters to 25 centimeters. Um, less than five is considered oligohydramnios and greater than 25 is polyhydramnios. So you've identified that the uh, fluid is normal. And while that's important in a trauma patient, sometimes we worry about rupture of membrane or even uterine rupture. So if a patient has uterine rupture, then they're gonna, um, their amniotic fluid uh, should be essentially zero. If they have rupture of membranes, it would be zero or close, much, much lower consistent with um, oligohydramnios. So then you continue to scan and you sort of scan through the baby's brain and you start to see this really abnormal appearing brain. So anything black on ultrasound is gonna be fluid and we should only see that in the lateral ventricles of the brain. But here you're sort of seeing the entire uh, cerebral cortex here is um, replaced by black or fluid. So we call this poor encephaly, where you have these unilocular uh, cysts that extend into the lateral ventricles, um, and you sort of see just destruction of the cerebellum um, and the cerebrum here. Um, and this is pretty consistent with um, interventricular hemorrhage. So from this um, trauma, you can see this, um, and it's an incredibly poor prognosis neurodevelopmental-wise, unfortunately. So the same patient that presented several hours ago continues to have abdominal pain, frequent contractions, and states that she's feeling lightheaded. You repeat her blood pressure, it's down 90s over 60s, and her heart rate is in the 120s. You repeat a fast and an obstetric ultrasound, and you see the following. So you have that anterior placenta, but now you see this area that appears very uh, heterogeneous, um, sort of collecting behind the placenta. So that would be a large hematoma that's behind the placenta with a placental abruption. 
So when you, this is that that large hematoma that you're seeing, that sort of what we would call retroplacental here. Um, and it's very concerning when you can see something that size on ultrasound. Um, and correlating that with the fetal heart rate tracing, um, you see pretty minimal to absent variability in the fetal heart rate. And then with these contractions, you see um, late decelerations. So all things in a taking in to the, into consideration, it's very concerning for a placental eruption. So in the setting of non-reassuring fetal heart rate status, hemodynamic instability, or placental eruption, and placental eruption, we certainly recommend delivery. So mode of delivery can be influenced by many factors, maternal and fetal. Um, and I say that in a patient that's hemodynamically unstable, while ideally we would like to replace, um, you know, their clotting factors, start to resuscitate with packed red blood cells, FFP, and platelets, and try for a vaginal delivery. Um, oftentimes, if maternal status doesn't allow or there's repetitive decelerations like that, you often have to do a cesarean delivery um, for these patients to expedite delivery. And I think the biggest thing is starting the resuscitation prior to um, making your incision because you're certainly going to deal with a lot of coagulopathy in the operating room. So contractions are common in the setting of a multi uh, motor vehicle collision and can be indicative of placental abruption. That's actually one of the most sensitive things, sensitive um, findings in eruption are contractions. So if I have a patient that comes in after an MVC and I want to kind of determine if they can go home versus need like 24 hours of monitoring, if they have one contraction every 10 minutes for um, sustained over an hour, um, that's a patient that I'm going to watch for about 24 hours and can often be the greatest risk of eruption in that time period. So unfortunately, it's really difficult to diagnose by ultrasound, and it will only identify approximately 20% of eruptions. Um, and a normal ultrasound cannot exclude an eruption. So in this patient, we asked you to send a, a Clyhauer bet key, um, and the reason for that is because if it's positive, it indicates that there's fetal maternal hemorrhage. And it sort of gives us an idea of, of the percent of the maternal circulation that is fetal blood. And while in a patient that's RH negative, it helps us to decide how much RHAG we need to give, we don't know the utility of it as much in a patient that's RH positive, other than we know there's fetal, fetal maternal hemorrhage and there otherwise should not be. So I think I'll probably stop there, um, just um, given the time. Um, we have a lot more cases, um, and uh, we'll certainly take this over on part two um, next week. But I'm happy to take any questions. I know that was really fast um, and, and kind of an overview of many, many different things. Um, so I'm sorry to go so fast. <laughs>